Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, it sounds like something out of a Hollywood blockbuster, but today, NASA did in fact crash a spacecraft into a meteorite to try to shift its course. Now, this one posed no threat to Earth, but this is practice for one day when one might. So how will they know if it's a success? We find out. Canada will wrap up all remaining pandemic-related travel and border restrictions at the end of the month. We find out why one infectious disease specialist says the time has come for them to be ditched for good. But first, we head to Atlantic Canada to assess the damage left behind by post-tropical storm Fiona. The devastated Porto Basque in southwestern Newfoundland, we speak with the Canadian Red Cross about the rush to meet short-term needs with so many without power and out of their homes and find out just how much more common these extreme weather events will be in the future. First, let's head to Atlantic Canada. I'm sure that's something we all watched over the weekend. It was devastating. It was heartbreaking to see some of the devastation through the Atlantic provinces. Uh, people across the region today continuing to assess the damage caused by post-tropical storm Fiona over the weekend. The Canadian military is there. There are currently 100 military personnel in Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, and PEI to help clear debris and make power restoration easier. Power still out for hundreds of thousands of homes and businesses throughout Atlantic Canada. It was up to, I think it was beyond half a million at one point uh, over the weekend. Now, one of the worst hit areas was the community of Porto Basque on the southwestern tip of Newfoundland, where huge storm surges swamped homes and pulled them out to sea. The mayor described it as a war zone, worse than you could ever imagine. One person in the town was killed during the storm. Newfoundland and Labrador Premier Andrew Fury got a look at the devastation today. He says it could take years to restore the community to what it was. The big message that we want people to hear is that we will be there for every phase, not just the acute response phase, which we're in today. But I am satisfied that the response of the federal government has been quick and efficient. And I have no doubt, should it need to be escalated, uh, given my discussions with the prime minister, it will be. Now, touring the premier around that area today was Andrew Parsons. He's Newfoundland and Labrador's Minister of Energy, Industry, Energy and Technology. And he also represents Bergio Lapoile in the provincial legislature, which includes Porto Basque. And he joins me on the line now. Thanks so much for your time tonight. No, thank you for having me on. And uh, through all this, we've been really uh, grateful for the support that we have gotten, not just across Newfoundland and Labrador, but uh, from all over the country, people have been reaching out and uh, it's been, we, we value that and we appreciate it. And it's certainly going to be important going forward. Yeah, I mean, we saw the images. I can't imagine the images do justice to what actually happened. But but what was that 24 hours like? So uh, in, in my particular situation, I actually wasn't in the district on Saturday when the storm hit. I arrived yesterday to basically be here to survey the, the destruction and it's just from every person i've talked to this was an unprecedented never before seen situation talking to you know seniors and people who've just been here their entire lives and we've seen our share of adverse weather but nothing like this when you're talking 40 foot waves going through houses throwing houses across the road moving cars all over the place uh it's just something i don't think we could really fathom and then when you get on the site and see uh coves filled with debris uh like like, basically like a bomb had been dropped uh it is hard to process and if you're one of those people that lost their home and just watching some of these people walk around it's uh it's really heartbreaking 
I can imagine because it's not a big place, right? And and I imagine no. so many families, everyone knows someone who's been hit. Obviously, they haven't been hit themselves. Absolutely. I mean, this coast is a small, small community. I have probably 7,500 people in my entire constituency of multiple towns. And so Port Basque is the biggest uh, and probably the hardest hit. But Burnt Islands being there today multiple homes destroyed, uh, Marguerite Fox Roost, Burgio, you name it. it. This affected the entirety of the coast, but no doubt, I think the greatest uh, destruction, certainly just in the number of homes, was in Port of Basque. Where do you begin when this kind of thing happens? Well, you know, and, and that's half of it. And thankfully, uh, I, I have nothing but the highest of praise for local leadership. I mean, the mayor and council and the town staff here. And these are friends of mine. I mean, these are people I I hang out with and they've gone above and beyond and been there. And everybody's just to see that what they've done in terms of even getting out there on social media and and assuring people and reassuring people has been fantastic. So, Right now, it's a coordination effort. Uh, the first couple of days was evacuating people, making sure people had a place to go, uh, and just dealing with the actual weather system. Since then, it's become a situation of where are we going to, what are we going to do long term? Where are we going to go? Um, and and again, this is a recovery that's going to take months. So right now, thankfully, everybody that's displaced, I think, has a place to go. In some cases, it's hotels. Working on getting people that houses are safe back in their homes and then taking individuals uh, that don't and then figuring out where they go. Then there's so many parts. There's you know dealing with infrastructure, water, sewer, uh, dealing with roadways, uh, you name it. Uh, and so, look, if anything, it's just a, a coordination, a logistic situation, working with the resources we have. And then the other side of it is that, you know, in many cases, people are going to have to rebuild and they're going to have to figure out how to pay for it. Uh, and that's where we as a government are going to come in. We are going to be there to make sure that we have people's back because, you know, there's obviously insurance issues that come out of a situation like this. Yeah, I have no doubt. Uh, I mean, we, we must be looking at for, I mean, we saw the images of houses being washed out to sea, essentially. It, it's going to take a very long time before everything is back to normal. And we're heading into fall and winter, too. So the, the, the timing is obviously not ideal. Absolutely. So right now, being the end of September, you know, we've got a window where, there's work that can be done that will be done and we have to prioritize that. And and look, there's multiple people that are helping with that engineers, there's structural analysis that has to be done. So that part has to be figured out. Even if you start rebuilding your house today, that's not going to be built. So where do we make sure people uh, have housing until we can get through that? But, you know, we've got a window till the winter sets in. And then after that, basically everything's on hold and my only concern is making sure that people uh, have a warm house and 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 are able to have temporary housing until we can get back to permanent housing how about for something like the economy of the town the economy of the region it must be uh it must have come to a bit of a standstill now and you want to build that back up too you know what and again being a, a community and a coast that we've dealt with this uh, you know things turned around fairly quickly now we are in a state of emergency but reality is that we've had to rely on hardware stores we've had to rely on restaurants uh gas stations uh, they so there hasn't been a huge shutdown there marine atlantic uh the ferry provider they're back up and running uh so it hasn't been that bad uh right now making sure people have the essentials uh and thankfully the weather uh you know the system was over uh fairly quickly and most of the business community to my knowledge wasn't affected 
And so, again, that's another one of those small silver linings we take from this. Yeah, good to hear. Good to hear. In the short term, um, Andrew, what, what are your priorities now just in the next 48, 72 hours? Well, right now, in every community, we're trying to get a full assessment and inventory of the damage. Uh, in many cases, I mean, when you start off, uh, I'll use Port of Basque for an example. There, we thought maybe 20 houses uh, were uninhabitable. That number is up around 75 now. Wow. That will continue to grow. So we need to have a full an- analysis to see whose houses are safe, whose are not. Where, and, and then that will in- then determine the, the number of people that we have. And then for me, it becomes a temporary accommodation situation. And it's not like there's a plethora of housing available as it is, whether it's Newfoundland Labrador housing, vacant houses, houses for sale, apartments. So that's my biggest issue is saying to young families, okay, we know your house is gone. We know even if you had coverage, it's going to take months to build. Where do we make sure that you get a place to stay for the next number of months? That's probably my top priority uh, right now. Um, and, And that's going to consume a lot of time, I think. And these are people you know. Just to be, like, this is this isn't. It's not like you're an this, MP from Toronto. From Toronto, this is like no. You know, this a, is, you know, like, these are all friends and family and people you know. Yeah, must be tough. This is it's a yeah. I mean, as you know, I'm going to places where I might have hung out when I was a kid. Uh, where I'm in my the neighborhood where my father grew up, and that place was just decimated. Uh, visiting my friend yesterday, whose house at, was safe, his entire backyard is gone and again it's nothing but rubble debris rocks thrown across the road uh so you know you're you're feeling this because it's not just a disaster uh where you you have that normal natural empathy in this case i'm sitting at my office last night with a friend who lost his house whose daughter is the same age as my son and seeing the the pain that they're feeling, it's 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 just really tough. And you're just trying your best to be there for these people who, in my case, are not just my constituents, but they're they're people that I, you know, play hockey with, or you know, volunteered with, or know them through a family member. So it it really is, uh, I guess, extra uh, difficult. Well, Andrew, obviously, yeah, the the, the country's watching and, and and wishing you all the very best with the rebuild. And yeah, it's 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 been tough to watch, but uh, I know the rebuild will be inspiring to watch unfold too. Well, if there's one thing um, about Newfoundland and Labrador is that we're resilient and we can persevere through anything. And so, while it is difficult, I am confident we will get there. And the fact that not just Newfoundlanders and Labradorians have rallied, there's trucks of supplies and clothes coming from all over the province the calls i'm getting from outside from my colleagues uh, ministers from ontario and from new brunswick and you name it everybody's reaching out and so at moments like that you take great pride in knowing that we're all we are in this together uh and that gives you some solace as you move through the day-to-day difficult things of figuring out these issues andrew parsons thank you so much thank you for the opportunity We're continuing our coverage of the devastation left behind by post-tropical storm Fiona in Atlantic Canada. On Friday night, of course, we spoke to a bunch of people from right across the region about what they were anticipating. Everyone we knew was ready, uh, but nothing prepares you for what happened. It was um, it was as bad as it was predicted. Luckily, it was predicted, so people knew what was coming. And if there's a silver lining in all of this, it is certainly that. The Canadian Red Cross, of course, um, always there when these things happen. There's been a massive response to help those affected 
by Fiona. It carried on today. It's a huge operation given the scale and scope of the destruction across so many provinces in areas that are sometimes hard to get to. Um, and the work continues to figure out who needs help the most and how to get it to them. Joining me now is Dan Bedell. He's Canadian Red Cross uh, with the Canadian Red Cross in the Atlantic region. Thanks so much for your time. Glad to be here, Ben. Just to look at the scale of it, I mean, I remember Friday night talking about what was coming, but by Saturday afternoon, it was hard to imagine what had come. It was just so widespread and the scope of it was so big. What have you been able to do so far to offer help and how do you assess? It's so big. Well, just to go back to your original comment there, you're absolutely right. The one advantage with a hurricane, of course, is that you do have time to prepare. I mean, we knew uh, several days before the, the event that it was coming our way. And uh, the forecast on this one, in terms of its path into the Atlantic region, was pretty much bang on. It it, uh, it went almost exactly uh, the route that it was forecast. So that helps in the planning uh, for this. So even before Fiona hit the region, uh, the Canadian Red Cross had already activated our, our volunteers and staff around the region. We had, uh, because we knew that PEI, Prince Edward Island, would probably be very hard hit, we had deployed additional staff and resources into that province from New Brunswick so that they could be uh, ready on scene there. Our colleagues in Quebec did the same thing in the Magdalene Islands, uh, which were also hard hit, uh, which is north of Prince Edward Island. So they had deployed additional people and resources into that province. And in Newfoundland and Labrador, we had moved uh, uh, people and, and materials from the St. John's area, the east side of that province, over to the west side to put us closer to the area that would be impacted. And in Nova Scotia, we had uh, moved some additional people and resources into Cape Breton uh, right. from uh, the mainland part of the province. So, you know, in, in the in the lead up, even you know, we we had taken a number of steps, and of course, all throughout this, we we worked very closely with uh, provincial governments and other emergency management organizations and agencies. So there was a lot of preparation work, although it's a a short timeline because you only get a few days' notice, but lots was done so we at least were in a better position to respond so in in the initial part of the response yes yeah so i mean for listeners who don't know i mean those are areas that you managed to get to that are all hard to get to uh once the storm hits right i mean those are all areas that are pretty pretty hard to i mean you know cape breton southwestern newfoundland where porto basques and so on those are hard places to reach well, there was a very real concern, for example, that uh, in Nova Scotia, there's, there's only one way on to Cape Breton Island, which is the right. Cancel Causeway, which is almost exactly the, the, the center line of this hurricane. So there was a lot of concern that if that causeway was damaged, uh, we wouldn't be able to move people or resources back or forth across. And, and that's also the link to the ferries to Newfoundland. So if that causeway is disrupted, then... It's not just the part of Nova Scotia that's impacted. It's any vehicle traffic to and from Newfoundland. So we were fortunate uh, uh, with that one because that could have really impeded things. Uh, as an example, uh, at, at the other end of the ferry terminal, it's the town of Port Basque. And I'm sure your listeners have seen the images out of there with uh, you know houses that were you know, literally picked up by the waves and dropped down again and smashed to pieces and some of them were actually washed away and there was you know tragically at least one fatality involved there too uh, that was a community at the height of the storm we we could not get a team in there it was just unsafe to be uh, on the road so so we had uh, a team 
standing by with uh, you know vehicles and, and camp uh, cots, and blankets, and the other things that we would use to support yeah, a shelter yeah. operation in the city of Cornerbrook, which is is the main city on the west coast of Newfoundland. It's about a two hour drive away. Oh. But by Dan, Saturday, just hang on. Dan, we're, we're going we're to take a quick news break and we're going to come back and we'll finish these thoughts because I have lots to ask you about what the response has been like, what it was like to live through this uh, over the weekend. And we'll get to that. Dan Bedell, the Canadian Red Cross, will be with us after the news. Stick with us. And traditional bureaucratic government programs are very slow to respond. What will the government do to speed up a response to help those who feed all of us get back on their feet? We will continue to be there as a federal government with immediate supports, uh, with the military where it's needed, uh, with investments uh, in the short term, uh, but we will also be there over the medium and indeed long term. The response to uh, post-tropical storm Fiona being debated in the House of Commons in Ottawa today. We've been speaking with Dan Bedell of the Canadian Red Cross in the Atlantic region about some of the immediate needs, some of the response. Uh, Dad, you were just talking about Porto Basque because uh, clearly we spoke with Andrew Parsons, who's the legislative member for the region earlier in the show. We are pretty aware of just how bad it is there, but I guess you're trying to help as well. And throughout that region where it was badly hit down in the southwest. That whole area, yeah. The, I mean, the town is, is what you're seeing mostly on the news, but uh, there are others who are affected by, uh, by by damage and ongoing power outages. So we do have a team there that uh, that's working with the, the community that you know brought with them cots and blankets and the other things they need to operate a shelter. Uh, now it's a very close knit community, and in fact, most of the people who are displaced out of their own homes are staying with others in the community. So. Uh, there, there is a shelter operation there. I think last night uh, there were only nine households that needed that, and by morning, some of those have been allowed to return back to their homes once uh, you know they could assess whether it was safe to do so. And a few others were dispersed to hotels, motels in the area. Yeah, but, but that shelter remains open because uh, uh, you know there are there are other homes that uh, people may have left, uh, and once they go back to them. And, realize that you know they're unsafe they, they may need some help too so we've done that there that that has been a big part of our operation in the initial couple of days after this we've been uh, supported with our volunteers and staff and cots and blankets and all of the other shelter uh, resources we need um, several initially of five shelters in the Halifax area uh, we're now down to really supporting one large one it had about 100 people stay there uh, the last, uh, the first night after the storm. And um, and we have a similar operation with even more people staying at it in uh, Sydney, which is in Cape Breton, which is uh, a much harder hit area. And a lot of devastation down there. And we've had teams that have been supporting uh, shelter operations in Prince Edward Island and also a couple of places along the uh, eastern side of New Brunswick that were hard hit too. And I, I deal with the Atlantic provinces, but I know that our, our counterparts in Quebec were dealing with uh, uh, communities along the Gaspé and uh, the Magdalen Islands that were similarly impacted. So a lot of that it, it was our focus initially. Uh, we're now moving into sort of later stages of additional forms of support that we can provide. Uh, yeah, what does that look of like? Some of that in partnership yeah, what does that look like coming in? I mean, obviously you have that initial response where people are without power, they're not sure they can stay in their homes, and then slowly but surely, I guess you figure out where the need still is. What will that look like, do you think, in the next, you know, 48, 72, 96 hours? Well, I mean, we, we will maintain these shelters for as long as there's a clearly identified need for them. 
a lot of the people who are staying there, in fact, we know uh, are coming from houses and apartment buildings where roofs were torn off or there was other structural damage such that they simply cannot safely go back home. Uh, now, now, what they're going to do in the longer term, um, you know, because uh, these repairs may take a while, if, if they're even repairable, you know, some of these structures may have to be rebuilt completely. And, uh, you know, like much of the, uh, the country, I think there's a you know critical shortage of housing in many areas, and this is just only exacerbates that. So uh, other agencies, uh, you know, uh, provincial governments, uh, uh, housing authorities, others, clear, you know, clearly are becoming involved in this, but at least in this initial phase, you know, we want to make sure that people, if they don't have family, friends, or, or some other arrangement they can make, they at least have some place where they can be safe and, and comfortable. And, you know, so those shelters will continue until we, uh, you know, manage to find alternatives or they manage to find alternatives and that need uh, is no longer there. Uh, what we're moving to now is uh, uh, looking at financial support to people, um, in a couple of ways. The first one, of course, being the Red Cross itself has opened an appeal to our donors coast to coast in Canada, and people are already contributing to that fund. And we will use uh, that money to assist. Um, you know, it, it's difficult to sort of pinpoint exactly how it will be used right now because a lot of needs assessment is still going on. A lot of needs haven't been even identified yet. But in general terms, we, we, as we've done in other disasters across the country, those funds will be you know, used to support uh, the ones who are the most heavily impacted and with uh, a lot of expenses, uh, but particularly those that are not covered by uh, government uh, assistance programs or insurance. Uh, you know, even if people qualify for both of those, and not everybody does, we know there are going to be huge uh, needs that they will have, and that's where we see the Red Cross stepping in with that, uh, with, with funds given to us by donors that we in turn can put right into right. the bank accounts of people who need that. Are those being those funds? Those are being matched by Ottawa right now. Is that right? There is, yes. Yeah, the federal government on Sunday announced that uh, for the next month they will match donations to that fund. Um, from individuals and from businesses and corporations. Right. It must have been, I mean, all your volunteers, you you're all you all live there. It must have been a rough weekend for you as well. You have both these commitments as members of the Red Cross to help, but also worrying about your own families and your own homes. Um, I, I can give you one interesting example. Like in, in Cape Breton, which is a hard-hit area, uh, a number of the people who are, have been evacuated because of damage to their apartment building, the roof was ripped right off, are international students from around the world attending Cape Breton right. University. One of those uh, is actually, you know, in, in his spare time while he's in Canada, is one of our volunteers. So, oh, wow. so at the shelter in Sydney, we have somebody who's out of his home along with all of his first student friends from the same building, but he's also there, you know, volunteering in a capacity with the Red Cross. But, we, you know, we, we do have others, and, and, yes, they are hearing, you know, I mean, people that are in a shelter are obviously very frustrated, and, uh, you know, it, it's extremely unsettling. I mean, you know, they're, they're out of their home because it's been damaged or destroyed, which is bad enough, but now they're in a, you know, a shelter where, you know, it's not a place that they want to be. It's with people that they don't know. They don't really know what necessarily the next steps for them are going to be. And, and it's just general, very stressful. One of the, so one of the things that the Red Cross is doing is we, we have among our volunteers and staff a cadre 
of people who specialize in an area we call uh, safety and well-being, and also mental health and psychosocial support. Some of these people in their professional lives are trained as social workers, and, and others have training in that field to recognize when, when people are, are really just, you know, under enormous stress, and, and they can, you know, talk to them and, you know, you know, try to work with them to, uh, you know, to, just to hear them out. Sometimes all they need is to be able to talk to somebody and, and uh, you know, that has some professional experience at dealing with that. So that, that's one of the things that we are offering at yeah, uh, we, shelter operations. We were hearing that from uh, from Andrew Parsons in in, uh, in Porto Basque today that he had a phone call from someone he knew and they were just, you know, they were back in their home, but the, they didn't feel safe. They didn't know what to do. It was all very uncertain. They had lost their backyard. You know, this is a really stressful time. Uh, Dan Bedell, thank you so much for talking to me tonight. I appreciate it and uh, keep up the good work. We'll try to catch up again sometime later in the week. I appreciate it, Ben. Thanks. <laughs> We've been looking into the aftermath of post-tropical storm Fiona that tore through Atlantic Canada over the weekend and just the sheer amount of damage. The total costs have not been determined, but estimated losses could range between $300 and $700 million of insurance claims. Now, the most expensive hurricane or wind event in Atlantic Canada in history was Juan back in 2003. It cost about $192 million, so already far above that. And of course, a lot of people don't have insurance. And are these the kinds of storms we're going to have to get used to in Atlantic Canada, these sort of unprecedented, heavy, almost sort of tropical windstorms uh, that bring all that rain. Well, to answer that question is Gordon McBean. He's an emeritus professor in the Department of Geography and Environment at Western University and a member of the Institute for Catastrophic Loss Reduction. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Ben, for inviting me. You've been watching these things for a long time. Uh, the ferocity of Fiona, I think, uh, it was well forecast, but certainly even when it hit, it came as a surprise. Yes, it was a very intense storm, and what we're seeing is a combination of factors of the changing climate, the warming, etc., that made it even more horrific than it might otherwise have been. What are some of the, how does that work? Because I gather it just continued to, to gain strength, or it didn't lose strength, I should say, as it moved north, which is not how it used to work. Um, this, this, this one was different for many reasons. Well, you the way in which a, a storm like that gets its real energy is from the the ocean that it's passing over is it's it, on the temperature and other conditions it's evaporating water into the lower part of the storm and that gets carried up into it by the air motions within the storm and when it can gets let's say cold enough or it so it, it condenses and that gives off energy which just basically ramps up the energy of the wind and circulation motions within the storm, the upward motion, etc. And it's the upward motion within the center of the storm that sucks in the wind, the air from, say, the outside and creates the really strong winds that happen. And what we're seeing with climate change is that, first of all, we should recognize and know that actually Canada is warming at about twice as fast on average compared to the global number. So when we say it's warm by 1.2 degrees Celsius in the last some decades, that means Canada's warmed at well over 2 degrees Celsius and the Canadian Arctic at three to four times warmer. And that doesn't quite exactly mean that the oceans over which it's passing has warmed it as much, but generally speaking, the warming is, is higher as we're moving north and so the warmer the water, the more energy that comes up out of the, the, in this case, the Atlantic Ocean, 
off the coast of the U.S. in most of this case uh, is, let's say, ramping up the amount of energy uh, that's in the storm and creating a, a Fiona-type uh, hurricane that causes really devastating effects. Uh, and the other aspect of this is that with climate change, we're warming the ocean, as I just said, but warming the ocean means you raise the sea level. And even if you're not raising it in meters, but by only you know tens of centimeters, uh, that can have a big impact when the storm comes to say you know Porto Basque or up the, the coast towards small uh, towns, where that are often built right along the coast, both for pragmatic reasons and the nice thing of being able to watch the ocean, etc. Uh, and the effect is that the wind not only is blowing straight at you, but it is amping up the waves that are surging in from the uh, the tropical storm or the hurricane that is impacting the coastal regions. And so these factors make it uh, so we should expect, according to the scientists who've looked into the real depth of this thing, the in-depth scientific analysis and projections, is that as we get uh, climate warming and it progress for decades to come is that we will see more intense hurricanes, even though we may not see more total hurricanes by number, just counting them when, you know, the, the number of hurricanes may not be larger, but the number of category four and five within that will go, will go up because the, it'll be the big intense ones that become even more often occurring. Yeah, I, I was reading about um, about a typhoon in the Philippines over the weekend, obviously Hurricane Ian now moving in towards Florida. What's really shocking is the rapid intensifications, how fast they go from being relatively, you know, mundane storms into really big, powerful storms in a matter of 24 hours, 36 hours. That seems different. Uh, I think it is a little bit, but not not a lot different. It's still the dynamics of it is such that these things are also uh, developing at a, a different rate in the sense that the because the, the tropical regions aren't warming as fast as the higher latitude regions, the the, well, the, the temperature gradient, the difference between the mid the equatorial temperatures and the mid Canada temperatures uh, is actually being reduced. And that creates another factor that comes into this that causes storms to develop perhaps more intensely, but not necessarily that much faster, I don't think. If we if you put on your other hat with the Institute for Catastrophic Loss Reduction, I mean, I'm out in BC. Mm -hmm. Clearly last year we had the wildfires, we had Lytton. Um, you know, we've seen this, uh, Fiona, this year caused widespread destruction. I think we're getting a taste of just how much uh, these extreme weather events are going to cost as well. Oh, yes. They're, the number of extreme events in Canada is going up. The insured losses have gone up to billion dollars and they're projected to go up to say by 2030 to maybe 10 or even 15 billion dollars per year uh, i'd like to emphasize that although the insured losses are huge and, and very important is there are also very many other aspects of the damage done the impacts on people uh, that happen from these catastrophic events the the mental trauma of the people, for example, in Lytton, B.C., with the wildfires and also happened in the Fort McMurray fires uh, in the eastern Canada ice storm back in 1998. Mm -hmm. uh, the professors from in neurology and 
that looked at uh, children who weren't even yet born. Their mothers were, though, so overwhelmed by two, three months of the trauma of living through an ice age for which you had no electric power. You didn't know if your job was going to continue or start again. And those children were showing mental and physical handicaps when they were three or four or five years of age. And there's a lot of mental health and health effects that affect people that are never counted in insurance dollars. In just the dollar senses, yeah. I mean, I guess that's when you look at Fiona and you talk, I was talking to someone in Porto Basque today, you know, he's mm-hmm. uh, the MHA there, the member of mm-hmm. the assembly, talking to people there who'd lost their homes, okay. and it's just settling in for them too. So I guess that is really one aspect of this we should never lose sight of is just the, the sheer, the tr- well, you know, just the, the trauma of losing everything you own in that, you know, just watching Mother Nature take it away so quickly. Yes, and it happened so quickly, as you said. I mean, the trauma on this must be really, is really horrific, as we've just said. And one of the things we need to do is to put more emphasis, in my opinion, on climate change, what we call adaptation or disaster risk reduction. And the the analysis has shown, and this is what the Institute for Catastrophic Loss Reduction looks at, and I'm part of that. And we look at you know, the hazard is very important, but the risk depends on not only what hazard and how that was changing in time, but also the vulnerability exposure. So are, is the piece of property you have, a house on the edge of the boundary, exposed? Well, yes. Is it vulnerable because it wasn't properly constructed or it was not constructed to meet the present requirements of having a, a storm of water pushing against it or, uh, you know, in Alberta, where I've been involved in a project looking at hail and the hail damage on uh, buildings. Uh, we had a $1.2 billion hailstorm in Calgary now a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And these events are, are really uh, um, well, due to the, the vulnerability and the exposure in this case of, of property along the coastline and uh, people and that's why we have to get a warning system through the media people like you to inform people that this is about to happen and also inform them in ways that they will take the right actions that's unfortunately in some cases means get out of there as fast as you can which means leaving behind that that treasured property of things of yours yeah, I suppose the, the changing realities uh, mean changing topographies as well, or changing vulnerabilities. Uh, Gordon yeah. McBean, thank you so much for your time tonight. You're very welcome, Ben. Anytime. Oh, this is indeed a space oddity, this story. It's not an oddity, actually. It's more of a Hollywood blockbuster plot. It does sound like something out of a Hollywood blockbuster because it is, wasn't it? A NASA spacecraft has rammed an asteroid uh, in an unprecedented test, the first of its kind, to see if potentially menacing space rock could be knocked off course. It was, I mean, I watched, I don't know if you watched it. It was amazing. It, it was more the fact that it approached it. it. It looked more like a collision than anything else, which, of course, is exactly what it was. I don't know how difficult it is to hit something that far away. Was it 11,000 kilometers, something like that, at a speed of about six kilometers a second? 21,000 kilometers an hour. Um, it sounds complicated. It's a far away. It, it hit it bang on. Um, but it's all about something called the Double Asteroid Redirection Test, or DART mission. This one's called Dimorphos. It poses no threat to Earth. But this kind of impact could deflect one that actually was a threat 
So this spacecraft, about the size of a vending machine or a fridge, as it was says, or a golf cart, went barreling into this rock, which is the size of about of the pyramids at Giza, the Eiffel Tower, more or less, 11 kilometers away at the speed of 21,500 kilometers an hour. And man, were they happy. Well, of course they are. They've been working on this forever or for a long time. Here's what it sounded like at Mission Control. Here's what success sounded like at Mission Control. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Eight, yeah. seven, oh, six, wow. five, four, three, two, one. Oh, my gosh. <gasps> oh, wow. Awaiting visual confirmation. All right. We got it. Waiting. Waiting. And we have an what was amazing, of course, is when the uh, when the spacecraft itself, which is a bit of a size of a fridge with wings, went into the rock, of course, it lost transmission. That's how you do it. It succeeded. It stopped. There was something trailing it, a little sad, also taking pictures so you could continue to follow what happened after. So the impact should have carved out a crater, apparently, and hurled streams of rock and dirt into space. Again, though, most importantly... They're hoping the collision would alter the asteroid's orbit ever so slightly, so that if, for instance, hypothetically, if one were headed towards us by doing this, you could slightly alter alter its course and avoid it. NASA Administrator Bill Nelson says this mission proves that planetary defense is indeed possible. We are showing that planetary defense is a global endeavor, and it is very possible to save our planet. NASA won't know how much the spacecraft actually nudged the asteroid for a few days or possibly weeks. Imagine, though, that someone was deeply involved in building that spacecraft just so that it could be launched into this thing and destroyed. One of those people is my next guest, Dr. Betsy Congdon. She's the Missions Mechanical Systems Engineer with the Applied Physics Lab at Johns Hopkins University. And I spoke to her earlier today, before success, because all they did all their interviews beforehand, uh, before they had to go watch this thing destroy itself on uh, on this meteorite. Uh, I spoke to her earlier today from Columbia, Maryland, uh, and thanked her for her time. Thank you. So you're quite literally going to try to change the path of an asteroid. This is remarkable stuff. Has it ever been done? This is the first time uh, the DART mission is the fir- very first, uh, NASA's very first planetary defense mission, and we will be deflecting an asteroid for the very first time. So h- how do you do it? It's actually uh, surprisingly simple. Uh, We are going to take the spacecraft and the spacecraft is going to guide itself into the asteroid and crash into the asteroid Um, that, you know, just hitting it kind of like a pool ball and that uh, will deflect it just a little bit. So there must be complexities to this, though. I have no doubt. Uh, What are some of those? It is certainly, you know, a challenging mission. As uh, we were just talking about, no one has ever done it before. So actually guiding, you know, having a spacecraft guide itself, it's going to be doing that, you know, completely autonomously. No one is going to be directing it here from Earth for those last uh, four hours. So that's obviously a challenge and the science behind and the engineering behind making sure that it knows how to do that and knows that it's going to guide itself. And right now we're aiming at uh, the system, the Dimorphos Didymos system, and we're actually hitting the smaller one, Dimorphos, which we haven't gotten a look at yet. Um, and we won't for a couple more hours. So uh, we're not even sure exactly what we're aiming at yet, but the system is all designed to go and, and hit it. And I gather this is, a, you're not going at a walking speed here. 
The spacecraft, which is about uh, 550 kilograms, uh, will be going at 6.1 kilometers per second as we go in. So pretty fast, uh, ultimately. How big is this is this particular uh, dimorphos, this, this, this asteroid that you're targeting? Dimorphos is about 160 meters. Uh, so somewhere in between like the Eiffel Tower and the uh, Pyramids of Giza, if you kind of trying to kind of visualize it. Right. Um, and the spacecraft is kind of like a vending machine, uh, vending machine size uh, with big wings for solar arrays. Yeah, I, I saw it compared to driving a golf cart into the Great Pyramids. That was sort of the, the, yeah, in, in terms <laughs> there you of go. Yeah. <laughs> now, often um, when we see this stuff done on film, uh, the, it always seems like A, it's a scramble and B, they want to destroy the thing, right? But this is very different. You're not trying to, this will not, uh, it's not going to destroy the asteroid, obviously. Yeah. So the goal of DART is actually to keep the asteroid in one piece because then you only have one thing that you're doing with. This is a test. Uh, Dimorphos, which is what we're hitting, has is you know no threat to Earth. Um, but the goal here is to really understand how this might work should we ever need to do it for planetary defense. So what what exactly will happen then? I mean, I realize that this is orbiting, right? This this asteroid is orbiting the other one, and and you you have a, a good idea, I gather, of, of exactly what that relationship is, how it works. So you actually have a lot of data on on how it works already, so you can tell what you're if what you're about to do works or not. Yeah, so um, it, this is what's called a binary asteroid system, which means there are two. Uh, so we have Dimorphos and Didymos, uh, Didymos being the larger one, and we're hitting the smaller one, Dimorphos. And so from here on Earth, we've actually uh, been observing, and you can kind of see two objects uh, you know, orbiting. And when the two are separate, there is a lot of area, and you're seeing you know, a lot of light coming off them. But then if one is behind the other, you know, the smaller one is behind the other, there's less light because there's less to be reflecting off. And then if it's in front, there's also less light because one's blocking the other. So basically, we've been looking at this from here on Earth so we understand how the two are related. Now we're going to go, we're going to hit the smaller one, and then we'll do that same observation from here on Earth with actually telescopes all over the globe over the next year to understand how that deflection has happened. Yeah, how will you measure success? I, I don't imagine it's going to be instantaneous, right? You're not going to know right away. I mean, you'll know right away whether you hit it or not, but you're not going to know right away whether it succeeded. So success does look like hitting it. That is, you know, we're, you know, that is our aim. Um, but then there is a lot of science to understand uh, in the next year. So one, we're going to understand how much we have actually changed that orbital period. That's important. We're also going to understand a lot more about Dimorphos itself. We know surprising little about asteroids in general, and we certainly don't know tons about Dimorphos. And so the pictures we're going to get uh, in the last final seconds and minutes as we go into Dimorphos is going to tell us about its shape, about its composition, what it's made of, as well as all of those uh, measurements that we're going to take from Earth. Additionally, there's a ESA mission, a European Space Agency mission called HERA. It's going to be launched in a couple of uh, years that will go and actually study Dimorphos and look at the DART impact site. And so we're going to learn even more. Planetary defense is really a global undertaking. I imagine, I guess everyone has interest in making sure that it works. Why did you choose this one in particular? This asteroid is um, important because it's this binary asteroid system that I was talking about so that we can do those measurements from Earth, which is kind of neat. Um, and it's also in a nice position relative to Earth. Um, and so with on a nice uh, orbit that we could understand. So it's really the perfect system. And that's why we're going after it. What is it about? Uh, I mean, how much of a threat we know from the movies, right, that there are these threats out there. But how much of a threat is this really? And 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 why is it taking it this long to sort of get to where you've gotten to? 
the likelihood of an asteroid impact is very low, but obviously it would be very bad if it happened. So we need to be prepared. Um, Dimorphous being at that size, that like pyramid of Giza size is actually a pretty important size because that would be the type of asteroid should it hit. This one is not um, that would destroy like a region. So it would be pretty destructive here on Earth. So if we can understand how we might deal with that size asteroid, it actually can be really important to us in the future should the very unlikely event happen that one is coming at us. Yeah, and and that's uh yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting point with 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 the whole the whole idea behind it because we talk about it all the time, but I don't think any of us really understands exactly how it works. So you just need to nudge it a bit, right? You just try to just shift it a little bit so that it would change course slightly, is that right? Yeah, so space is quite large, uh, and so you don't need to do big changes to something, particularly if you catch it early, uh, to make a real big impact. So, yeah, we're just nudging this one just a little bit, and that would be um, a method that we could use in the future should we detect one of these. How has it been for you just as a scientist to be involved in this? I, um, as an engineer, this has been just uh, amazing. We... Uh, you know, to be a part of something that's so important, you know, playing a small role, something that's so important for the greater, you know, human kind um, is amazing. And it's also great because it's just awesome to talk about, right? Uh, you can really understand why this is something we should be doing um, and everyone can get excited about it. And we hope everyone is just as excited as we are. Yeah. And what's, what is your role? Like, what has been your role? Is, is essentially, if listeners don't, don't quite know, I imagine it's a huge yeah. team as always, right? <laughs> yeah. So we have a huge team and I'm just one small part of it. I am the um, lead mechanical engineer, which means I lead the team that actually assembles the spacecraft. So putting the whole thing together, actually getting the bolts into it, uh, which is a really exciting job. Um, and you really get to get hands on and, and see the whole thing come together. Ultimately, so that it'll be destroyed, right? So you built ultimately something. so that we, it will destroy itself in a, in an asteroid. Yeah, <laughs> I, I guess it's odd to cheer for the success of destroying something you built because that's the whole point of the mission, right? I mean, it's a little odd, but honestly, it's exciting. You know, when you launch a spacecraft that you've invested a lot of time and energy into, you're just wishing it well on its journey, right? And this uh, mission's journey is to hit the asteroid and destroy itself. So I'll be just as excited as everyone else. So, uh, so again, what, what will success look like? So we're, you're going to then monitor this now for a period of time. I realize I think the James Webb telescopes can have a quick look. There are all kinds of telescopes around the Earth that will look as well. Is there not another thing trailing it that'll, that'll, that will also take some photos and sort of beam those back? Yeah, so DART has had a uh, CubeSat that's been riding along with it up until about 15 days ago called Leecher Cube, which was actually supplied by the Italian Space Agency. Um, and it will be taking pictures of impact. We released it about... Uh, Two weeks ago, like I said, and um, it's up there. It's uh, all working and, and talking back to Earth. And so we expect to see some things from it as well. And then after that, you just get a monitor. Is that right? So do, will you have any idea off the bat, other than whether you've hit it or not, will you have any idea off the bat whether it's been successful or is it just the, the, the impact will be the success stage one? And then after that, you'll figure out exactly what uh, what impact the impact had, so to speak. Yeah, so impact uh, of DART into uh, Dimorphos is, you know, number one, that's the goal uh, at 7.14 p.m. Eastern this evening. Um, and then we will be spending the next year really understanding what that impact means. Uh, ESA's HERA mission uh, will be going up and looking uh, in 2026. So there's lots of work to go after impact, but our goal tonight is impact, and that will be success. Is there any plan B if there's not an impact? So the team goes through a variety of contingencies uh, and practices, you know, if something were to happen. And one of those things is, you know, if it doesn't impact. And the spacecraft has 
a um, protocol it will go through. It will be it will preserve all of its fuel so we can actually go at it uh, again later. Wow. Dr. Betsy Congan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. So let me put this in a story. I flew to England um, for the Queen's funeral. Obviously didn't have to show anything when I landed in England about my vaccination status. Needed it to get on the plane, clearly. On the plane, I had to wear a mask. I, I, I don't mind. But still, you take your mask off to eat. Um, then you get off the plane, no one's wearing a mask. And then you get on a subway, no one's wearing a mask or a train. And then you're downtown in London, no one's wearing a mask. You come back to the airport, no one's wearing a mask. Uh, you wait around, no one's wearing a mask. And then you get back on the plane, put your mask back on. So it all seemed a bit odd at this point. It's not that I have anything against anyone wearing a mask, by the way, they are effective. Um, but those are all coming to an end now. All those restrictions, all those things we had in place when it came to travel on the border are going to come to an end on October the 1st. So COVID-19 restrictions such as vaccination, masking, requirements for flights and trains and so on forth are done. Here's how the Prime Minister explained it. We make decisions based on what experts, what doctors, what uh, public health authorities uh, recommend us to do. Uh, and uh, there is uh, the sense that these border measures uh, were no longer um, effective or no longer justified. So this includes mandatory vaccination, testing and quarantine of international travelers, etc. The Arrive Can app becomes optional. We already kind of knew that. Uh, the health minister though, says that uh, they could be reinstated if needed. And we will therefore leave open all possible options uh, when it comes to protecting the safety of Canadians in the world, in a COVID-19 world, which in particular we know has been generating all sorts of surprises over the last uh, two years and a half. Well, with more on this, joining me now is Dr. Zane Chagla. He's an associate professor of medicine in the Faculty of Health Sciences at McMaster University in Hamilton. Thanks for your time. Hi, good afternoon. So just your first reaction to uh, to this move we've been waiting for, and I think people had predicted it might be coming this month, but uh, what, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this matches what's happening with the rest of society, you know, and, and really matches what's been happening in, in much of the world. You know, we do know vaccines are really important, but their ability to limit transmission is is limited. And, uh, and you know, knowing that much of the world that one way or another has immunity, either through vaccination or natural infection, really starts bringing down the potential for vaccine to add another layer of safety and travel. And so, you know, knowing that there are people excluded. I'm glad that, you know, that uh, that's anyone has the ability to travel, although I'd encourage them to still get vaccinated. And then the masking issue, I think, has been contentious. And, and certainly masking does help with reducing transmission. I don't think we argue about that. But again, in the context of most of society where masks are optional and, you know, the, the fact that airplanes, uh, when ventilation systems are running, are very effective and you know, people having to take a mask down while traveling for drinks and eating, you know, really does make it a bit difficult to kind of enforce it as a measure when, again, the rest of society can go out, go to a Raptors game, go to a restaurant, go to church, go to school without a mask. But this is the one environment where it's still needed. Yeah, it, it, well, I, as I was mentioning, I just came back uh, from the UK on the plane. And of course, you know, there were very few masks on the streets of London over the course of all the different events for the Queen's funeral. Um, there were no masks on the train to Heathrow. There were no masks in the waiting room or the waiting area. And then I'll, you get on the plane, you put one on. Now, I don't mind. 
but and then you take it down to eat. So it just all seemed a bit it all seemed a bit random at this point. Yeah, absolutely. Look, and and again, there are good reasons to wear a mask or good times to wear a mask in travel. I think those crowded spaces may be a place where, especially if your risk is high or you want to add additional protection, you know, mask may help in those settings. But again, there are, as you mentioned, there are lots of those settings in reality where masks are optional. There are lots of places in the world where flying where masks are optional. And so I think, again, in the context of very good immunity, where the disease is very different in the vast majority of the population, access to treatments are here, newer vaccines are here. You know, I, I think we start thinking about some of these old rules more in the context of if they're really still needed. And and again, focusing on the things that really do, you know, affect healthcare, like vaccinations and treatment. From a public health perspective, and I mean, I, I, I you know there were a lot of people clamoring early on for for strict rules at the border, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that was one of those things in the early days of the pandemic that was uh, that was championed. But as it wore on, it felt like it was the one thing that just wouldn't go away was these sort of border restrictions. Uh, why do you think they lingered for so long? And were they effective? I mean, I guess what it boils down to is, were they good policy, even though they seemed like a good idea when they were first implemented? So, you know, I think at the beginning, look, all we had was trying to slow down transmission as a way to mitigate healthcare utilization. And so I think, you know, every measure has to be weighed. But at the same time, you know, we had very little to reduce the number of cases, or at least the number of cases that ended up in the hospital. Uh, and so, you know, some of the measures we put in place at the border were absolutely reasonable in consideration that we didn't have any tools. Uh, when, you know, the Alpha variant came, similarly, I think there were travel restrictions that were reimposed to places like the United Kingdom, quarantines, that type of thing, where, again, you know, it was a bridge to try to get people vaccinated at the time and, and get to a better spot before we reopened travel. But I think when Omicron hit, there was a really big lesson that was learned there, right? You know, and you imagine back in November 2021, most of the Canadian population had been fully vaccinated. We were unclear what the impact of Omicron was, but we decided to, you know, shut out and test everyone when we got through the border. And, you know, within a week, we started hearing about Omicron exploding in our local communities. It's already too late. And, and I think that's the big part. You know, with the next variant and the next variant and the next variant, it's going to be in our communities before we even pick it up at the border. Uh, and I think we have to just buckle down and scale up on the things that work, making sure that we vaccinate people, giving treatments to people who are at risk, doing surveillance in our communities, using sequencing and wastewater to understand what's circulating in our communities. But again, it became very apparent over time that the border wasn't going to keep out variants of concern, that people are globalized. Uh, and again, you know, those measures really weren't doing much other than adding a lot of inconvenience to the traveler and keeping certain people away from the country. And do you think removing these now is going to have an impact? Anything noticeable? You know, we we did look at this in a report, and it, it, the bottom line is, you know, when when there's a certain percentage of people that have COVID in your country, and then there's a certain number of people that have COVID coming in over the border, if the percentage of people in your country getting COVID is higher, or you know, the 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 freedoms in that country are. Um, uh, you know, basically back to normal, the impact of bringing cases in over the border is pretty minimal in that sense. Yes, variants will come, but I don't think there's any way to keep them out, especially in a globalized society. If something is more transmissible than even the BA4, BA5 Omicron, you know, it'll be here one way or another, whether or not we close the border and open it up in six months or we leave it open for six months. Um, 
And, you know, again, I, I think that really just uh, spells the message that, you know, we should be treating everything equal and the border is as everything else in society. Uh, you know, if we're going to maintain an open society, then again, the border is probably going to be very minimal in terms of what it's going to contribute to COVID transmission. And in terms of just as a tool, a tool of coercion, so to speak, keeping people off planes and trains if they weren't vaccinated, keeping people off planes and trains if they wouldn't mask, was that effective, do you think, as public policy? You know, I looked at this as part of an op-ed in the in the Globe and Mail. So, you know, November was when the the deadline for proof of vaccination came into place where people couldn't use a test and an exemption to get on a plane or train. Uh, and when I looked at this in about May, 3% of the adult population had gotten a primary series of vaccines in that interim. And again, some of that may be other reasons uh, or other contexts. I think it probably wore out in terms of what it could do and, and how much it could inspire people getting uh, there. And, and, you know, again, you know, vaccine immunity is not the only immunity there. Yes, if there was no immunity in the population through infection, you know, we would want people to get vaccinated. But we're seeing, you know, studies out of BC, out of the Canadian Immunity Task Force, suggesting that 60 to 70 percent of the Canadian population has had COVID. And globally, it's probably even higher in the context of many countries having even less controls than Canada. And so, you know, I think in that context, um, you know, do we want people to get immunized? Absolutely. And we want to make it a positive decision that they and their providers both agree to and, and are inspired to continue to do. But I think as a tool of coercion, it's it's not appropriate anymore. And, and again, you know, we may actually be doing more harm in pushing people away. Um, Dr. Chenko, tell me a bit about this report, because it's it's a really interesting one. I know, obviously, the travel and tourism industry were pushing for some of these restrictions to come down because they felt it was impacting their businesses. But you went at this from, from, a, from a medical standpoint. Were there any surprises in there about, about how effective some of these measures were and weren't? Yeah. So, I mean, there were there were some facts I think we knew that that airline travel was probably, you know, there was transmission that happened on airlines, but it was less than than other uh, modalities, considering some of the measures in place like ventilation and filtration. Um, But I think the interesting part was looking at some of the modeling studies. And again, we don't have great data in terms of exactly as a randomized control trial what uh, border measures would do. So we model it out based on what we think, you know, the number of people we'd pick up with testing, the number of people that we'd stop transmitting with quarantine and and, and go through that. And I think earlier, again, when we had vaccines that matched the variants well and we had um, more defined symptoms, uh, there was a lot more potential for these measures to work. You know, there was one nice modeling study that tried to look at, you know, Omicron, the use of testing uh, and uh, and uh, short quarantine, basically, in terms of preventing the emergence of an Omicron peak in a country, and it prevented the peak by about four days. Uh, and so, you know, I think uh, when we start looking at what's happening globally, and we're seeing this in action, even places in the world that have had fairly strict restrictions, like Hong Kong and Japan seeing fairly massive waves of COVID. You know, once this comes into the border, once it starts circulating locally, uh, which is often before it's even picked up in terms of being screened as a variant, things are already out of control. And and again, you know, shutting down the border, adding impositions at the border is likely not going to do much to change that that prognosis. It's transmitting locally. Um, so I think that's it's, it's a good lesson. And especially as the frame for these measures being lifted is maybe being put back if something changes, it really does suggest that these should be lifted in permanency, 
given that, you know, whatever comes down the line is going to be here one way or another, whether or not, again, it's in months or, or years, we really can't avoid being connected to the world. And again, we shouldn't be using the border as a way to police the pandemic. Yeah, I, I imagine that we did. Uh, and the ArriveCat app, of course, is becoming optional. One wonders how many people will use that. I found it quite easy to use now because I've used it quite a few times. But um, I, I guess we're, we're the one thing is we are going to start losing some of that data that we had at the border, which I think was probably the only way we were still keeping track of things to some extent. But at the same time, like we've lost data in some of our communities, right? True. You know, it's it's interesting because if I'm a traveler who's coming back from, you know, an international destination, I get picked for an asymptomatic test. Um, you know, I have to go get my test done. It may be positive or negative. If I don't get picked for a test a day later, I uh, develop symptoms I don't have access to a PCR test in my community unless I'm a high-risk person or a healthcare worker. That data is really not being collected a day after I travel in that sense, right? So, you know, I, I think this is where the paradox happens is what data is good data. And again, there are in the report, we talk about great ways to still get good data. We can still sequence local samples and upload them internationally, which many other countries are doing. I can look up the variants in the United States off the CDC website. You know, Canada should be doing the same to be contributing to the world, and they are. Uh, and wastewater has become a really interesting tool, and, and even adapting wastewater to the airport is being experimented with so that we pick up on variants based on wastewater from flights and, and actually use that as a tool to say what's circulating in the world in that context. So we're getting better tools, and I think that's the, the bigger thing is that we don't necessarily need data that's imposing to the traveler. We can use passive data that we have access to without necessarily creating extra barriers in the travel and tourism industry. Did you get a sense at any point that um, that we'd kind of run out of ideas, that there was all these kind of very creative ideas at the beginning? And of course, lots of great work continues. Uh, but that at a certain point, we sort of came up with these first ideas like testing and, and, and masks and, and restrictions. And we just didn't move on from them because we didn't have we needed something there to be to, to, to ease people's fears. Um, but we didn't know what else to if we took them away. There was nothing else there. Right. People were going to feel exposed. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's human behavior. We were very, you know, attached to the numeracy of this pandemic, especially at the times where, again, case rates were just such a translation into what's going to happen in our healthcare utilization. And now it's very different in the context of vaccines and treatments and immunity. Um, but at the same time, like, I think it is innovations too. Like wastewater was used really effectively in Australia. And then we really just adapted it over the last few months to, to tweak it and use it as a really good surveillance, both locally. And now we're experimenting with it, even at the airports to, to experiment with how to go through things globally. Uh, so, you know, I, I think there's just innovation that's occurring in a bubble here. And and even as a scientist, like you see it in, in everyday context as ways to, to surveil without necessarily um, imposing on people, which is probably the hardest way to do surveillance because it involves human behavior. Um, so, you know, it, for us, we're still going to get good, good data in, in these ways. Um, but yeah, to the average person, they're not going to get as much data output, which is fine because the, their measures have to be, you know, getting vaccinated, using a mask appropriately and, and getting treated if they were high risk. These things are all still effective if you have, but not just not necessarily always in the same context, like travel and borders and so on. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And they're, they're reliable, they, they'll work, your immune system is there, you know, in good times and bad. So, you know, again, they're, they're easy things to do to, to lower the risk as compared to some of the things we were doing at the border. Dr. Chagla, thank you so much. No problem.
All the best. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.